some water and dance on the new track. I want a banana and some water and dance on the new track. I want a banana and some water and dance on the new track. I want us two people and you're not better than me. I'd like to ask you some questions if we can speak honestly. What do you feel when you see all the homeless on the street? Who do you pray for at night before you go to sleep? What do you feel when you look in the mirror? Are you chance to say goodbye how do you walk with your head held high can you even look me in the eye and tell me why la da da la da 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 Mr. President, were you a lonely boy? Are you a lonely boy? How can you say no child is left behind? We're not dumb and we're not blind. They're all sitting in your cells while you pave the road to hell. What kind of father would take his own daughter's rights away? And what kind of father might hate his own daughter if she were gay? I can only imagine what the first lady has to say. You've come a long way.
Mr. President You'd never take a walk with me Morning, everybody. This is the B, Labor and Love Radio. You just listened to Pink. Dear Mr. President, what's going on? There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some love in here today Father, Father We don't need to escalate Oh, you see, war is not the answer For only love can conquer hate You know we've got to find a way To bring some love in here today Oh, picket lines and picket signs Don't punish me with brutality Come on, talk to me so you can see
Everybody thinks we're wrong Who are they to judge us Simply cause we wear our hair so long You know we've got to find a way To bring some love in here today Oh, picket lines, picket signs Don't punish me with brutality Come on, talk to me so you can see What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Oh, what's going on? What's going on? John Legend there with his version of Let's Go, What's Going On. Good morning, America. How are you? Not well. I win. Riding on the city of New Orleans, Illinois Central, Monday morning rail, 15 cars and 15 restless riders. Conductors and 25 sacks of mail All along the southbound Odyssey The train pulls out from Kankakee And rolls along past houses, farms, and fields And passing trains that have no names And freight yards filled with old black men And the graveyards of the rusty automobiles the floor and the sons of Pullman porters and the sons of engineers ride their father's magic carpet made of steel and mother love your babe to sleep rocking to the gentle beat and the rhythm of 
Mission District. Good morning, San Francisco. Good morning, California. Good morning, America. This is The Bee, and you're tuned in to Labor and Love Radio on Mutiny Radio. We're here at 2781 21st Street, where we are every Saturday morning from 10 to 12, recording live and archived at... Well, you can archive at uh, at um, mutinyradio.fm. You can archive, look for archives at on iTunes as well. Labor and Love Radio. Well, we let off with some question songs. Mr. President, how do you sleep at night? Has Mr. Trump finally turned the corner? A new issue of Time magazine shows Mr. Trump standing 
and looking down at a little three, four-year-old girl who's crying. And the caption is, Welcome to America. Give me your huddled masses. That's how the Statue of Liberty goes. Send them to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Oh, what have we become, huh? What's going on? Asked John Legend. We started with Pink, asking, how do you sleep at night? Even the First Lady now has uh, weighed in on this before she put on her controversial coat that says, I don't really care, do you? Wonderful. Why would she wear such a coat at such a time? Ah, what's going on? And finally, with the highwaymen, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, let me see if I can get them all. Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson with their version of a Steve Goodman song called City of New Orleans. And the question is, good morning, America. How are you? You're not good, America. At your border, you're tearing about, tearing apart families and then going around talking about your family values. Your president has lied and backtracked on this issue already. First, he said it was the Democrats' fault. Blame everything on the Democrats. Number one in the Trump playbook. Well, it's no secret that Democrats did help create this situation. Democrats and their terrible, and our terrible fear of immigrants. Amazing immigrants. Here's a little thing on Facebook. I'll have to look for it. Good morning. Um, so, what is happening at the border? Well, what's happening at the border is that some people have decided that it's uh, our policy to separate children from their families. I don't know where that came from. It came from our terrible, horrible fear of immigrants. Here, listen to this. This is about how Chinese restaurants thrive. It's not what you think. Restaurants are literally everywhere in the U.S. But believe it or not, the reason has less to do with how delicious Chinese food is and more to do with racist immigration laws at the turn of the 20th century. In the late 1800s, hundreds of thousands of Chinese laborers came to the U.S. to work in farms, factories, and mines. But before long, white Americans started to feel threatened by their willingness to work for lower wages. Sound familiar? 
Eventually, that fear turned into law. It was called the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. This law banned all Chinese laborers from entering the U.S. and made it really difficult for those who were already here to re-enter if they went back to China for a visit. But there was one important loophole: some business owners can get these special visas that let them return to China and bring back employees. Restaurant owners were on that list. And so the Chinese restaurant boom began. From 1910 to 1920, the number of Chinese restaurants in the U.S. doubled, and then doubled again the following decade. But getting these special visas wasn't easy. Only high-end restaurants qualified, which meant applicants had to invest a huge amount of money up front. On top of that, they had to find two white witnesses because nobody trusted Chinese people. To get around these rules, a group of Chinese immigrants would just pull their money and invest in fancy eateries, and then they'll find white vendors to sign off on their visa in exchange for business. Brilliant. Today, there are more than 45,000 Chinese restaurants in the U.S., and together they sell billions of dollars worth of food each year and employ tens of thousands of people in a country that originally tried to keep Chinese immigrants out. While xenophobia is still rampant a century later, it goes to show that against all odds, immigrants will find a way and make it taste delicious. Chinese restaurants, why they thrive? They thrive because of limitations、uh, for immigrants coming into the United States. They could own, only people who had certain qualifications could get in, and one of those was that you own part of a restaurant. You were going to establish a restaurant. So this is why Chinese restaurants thrived. That was a racist history of Chinese restaurants on Facebook Watch, talking about the Chinese Exclusion Act. All this is based on stereotypes. Mr. Trump uses stereotypes about working people whenever he can, like asserting that MS-13. We're going to keep out MS-13. Okay, these aren't rich Mexicans that are coming. These aren't rich Hondureños or Guatemaltecos. These are normal people who found life in their own country unbearable for one reason or another, or people who want to come here and earn money, and they're treated as stereotypes. Here's、uh, Francesca on on、uh, her show, Decoded. Why do you think stereotypes are true? Well, it's a stereotype because it's true. But actually, stereotypes aren't true. Your brain is actually tricking you. I trusted you, brain. So, what exactly is a stereotype? Well, it's a simplified generalization that's used to describe an entire group of people. Stereotypes can be both negative, like white people can't dance, and positive, black people can dance. But either way, stereotypes do the same thing. They lump people together instead of seeing them as individuals. But wait, you're black, so of course you can dance. I mean, I can do a mean two-step. 
but besides that, I wouldn't say I'm a great dancer. But most people think the black people can dance stereotype is true because of social conditioning and the media. Eddie Murphy's Raw came out in 1987, and then his famous white people can't dance joke was repeated all throughout the 90s. We had movies like Save the Last Dance, where a white girl learns to dance from a black guy. Bring It On also perpetuated this stereotype with rival black and white cheerleading squads. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So how does a joke from a popular stand-up routine transform into a stereotype? Well, it's been discovered that your brain doesn't have the cognitive ability to discern TV from reality, especially when it's developing. So 20 years later, when BuzzFeed writes articles like 17 ways white people dance, you now think, yeah, white people can't dance and black people can. You've been conditioned. Okay. But if I'm at a party and I absolutely have to choose, I'm gonna pick the black guy over the white guy because they just have better rhythm. Now you've gone beyond generalization and into bias. So stereotypes are cognitive shortcuts. Your brain wants to make an immediate judgment about somebody based on their gender, race, or age. And you might think this is harmless, but when you apply a stereotype behind that impulse, you have bias. So let's break it down. If you see an Asian person and think, yeah, they must be smart, you're stereotyping because your brain has been trained to associate Asians with intelligence. It all goes back to conditioning. The Asian kid in the Goonies was literally named Data. Harold in Harold and Kumar, George Huang in Law and Order, Christina Yang in Grey's Anatomy. The list of Asian film and TV nerds goes on and on and on. But if you hire an Asian person for a job over someone else just because you think Asians are smarter, that's bias. You're applying a stereotype to an individual without actually considering the individual. Okay, but this stereotype is true. I mean, statistically, Asians outperform everyone in education and you cannot argue with numbers. Here's where things get a little complicated. There's a social psychology phenomenon called stereotype threat, and it's kind of a double-edged sword. When you hear you're not supposed to be good at something, you tend to underperform, often unconsciously. In 1995, several experiments showed that black college students performed worse on standardized tests compared to white students when they were confronted with racial stereotypes. When those stereotypes weren't emphasized, black students did just as well and even better than their white classmates. Unfortunately, studies in the past 20 years show that the stereotype threat phenomenon is only getting worse. When it comes to Asian American students, many say they feel pressure to live up to the smart Asian stereotype. And according to a recent sociology study, the Asian American Achievement Paradox, they're not imagining this pressure. The study found that teachers and guidance counselors often assumed their Asian students were smarter, putting them in advanced classes that they didn't asked for, and some Asian students even admitted to getting better grades than they thought they deserved. Basically, stereotypes can become self-fulfilling prophecies. Wait, you just admitted that stereotypes are true! I knew it! Sure, Asian Americans often get good grades, but does that mean the socially awkward Asian nerd stereotype is true? No, absolutely not. The scientific community calls a fact about a large group of people an empirical generalization. Here's another example. Men are taller than women. Empirical generalization. Statistically, men are taller than women. But in reality, there are some women who are taller than men. On its own, men are taller than women is pretty harmless. But unfortunately, society then created stereotypes around this generalization. The idea that short men overcompensate or that women don't like short men are stereotypes. They simply don't apply to everyone. But because of stereotype threat, women are conditioned into this feeling. So it's not uncommon to hear, I'm just not into short guys. 
And maybe short guys feel the brunt of this and feel like they have to go the extra mile on dates. Thus, the stereotype perpetuates itself. But we have the power to differentiate between an empirical observation and a stereotype. And stereotypes are constantly changing, so we should stop thinking about them as shorthand for the truth. Look, stereotypes seem convenient, and actually our brains want to stereotype. It's easy to look at someone and assume things about them as a group, but your first instincts aren't always right. In reality, we should give people a chance to be themselves instead of unfairly labeling them. Okay, that was Francesca Ramsey talking about stereotypes by way of trying to figure out how this crisis at our border happened. And as usual, it's about dividing working people, about setting United States working people against working people from other places. As long as they can keep that divide, keep us divided and say, all those guys over there are MS-13. All these guys over here are Ku Klux Klan. As long as they can keep us divided that way, they will. Because you have to look beyond. We say this is based on nationalism, but it also has a labor basis. People come here to better their lives, and that includes getting work and making enough money to support their families. So, what a Trumpist needs to say is, well, they're taking our jobs, just like the lady in the, um, the talking about the Chinese restaurants. One of the things, the big things in the 1860s in California, 1870s, was that the Chinese people who had come here to work on the railroad, mostly, the Chinese were taking our jobs so instead of venting their anger on the employers who were deliberately, as always, pitting Chinese workers against white workers, Mexican workers against white workers, they, they turned their anger on the workers themselves. Sort of a fateful, you know, mistake should have known better. Labor and Love Radio here. This is where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a place at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And finally, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. So we started out with that questions set. Mr. President, how do you sleep at night? John Legend, what's going on? What's going on with us? What's happened to us? And finally, good morning, America. How are you from the highwaymen with their version of the city of New Orleans? Good morning, America. How are you? Take a look in the mirror. 
You're attacking little children. It's a terrorist act. You are guilty of terrorism. Taking children away from their parents purposely as a matter of policy. Okay, let's take a look here. Last week I wanted to cover Ed Sedlowski and um, the California Nurses Association president who's, who uh, is retiring. We'll have to find her. Um, let's play some music. Here's uh, Cafeteras, Café con Pan.
Okay, this next song is identifying our enemies. These are the people, the real enemies of America, the people who really want to tear this country down. By these people coming into our country, which used to be theirs, our country, they are ruining, they are invading, they are taking our country away from us. Bet you didn't know who I'm talking about. I'll listen up. Here they are. These children. America, now you know who our real enemies are. But we're doing something about it. We're stopping them at the border, taking them away from their parents, throwing them in big areas. Mothers are as bad as they are, and their fathers too, bringing kids here like a shield, using them so you can get into the country, putting your children at risk, just so you can come here and break the law. Well, we know what to do. We're not going to let them in. I don't care if you've got kids. I don't care if you're a father or mother. Too bad. Kids go over there, you go over there. That's just how it is. All right, in that set we played the Cafeteras and their song Café con Pan from an album It's Time. 
Then we had Bruce, the boss, Springsteen, with his version of Pay Me My Money Down, song of the uh, warehouseman and uh, longshoreman in Savannah, Georgia, collected by um, someone there. And uh, Pay Me My Money Down. If I was a rich man's son, pay me my money down. I'd sit right down, watch the river run. Pay me my money down. And then finally, De Colores. Like I said, we need to identify the enemies of our country. And as far as I can tell, it's children. Okay, we're attacking the weakest people we can. Well... Are they our enemies? Hello? Wake up, America. Let's get on the labor beat here. I wanted to talk about Roseanne DeMauro because she just recently retired. And if the name is not familiar to you, Roseanne DeMauro was the president of one of, a union leader of one of the most militant unions in California the CNA, California Nurses Association. Nobody would call Roseanne DeMora, who transformed the California Nurses Association into one of the state's most powerful political forces and a natural player retiring. But on Sunday, she will retire. This is a couple weeks ago. It was in, actually in March. Um, she will retire from the organization she has led for 32 years, saying she leaves the union 100% ready to fight its values. I've got 41,600 people following me on Twitter. And I've got enough of a bad attitude to have that kind of following. She never saw herself as a union leader building a social movement. That attitude helped the nurses' union deflate former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger when few others would take him on early in his first term. The nurses dogged him with 107 demonstrations within a year, helping to shrink his once sky-high approval rate. In much the same way they torpedoed the 2010 gubernatorial campaign of his potential Republican successor, billionaire Meg Whitman, by following her around California with a living prop, a pearl-draped actress dressed as Queen Meg riding in a horse-drawn chariot. Her union's relentless ad advocacy helped elevate single-payer health care into an issue in both California's gubernatorial race and the national conversation. When the country adopts a single-payer system, Sanders has predicted, people will look back and say that Roseanne DeMauro and the National Nurses Union helped do that.
She's pretty independent-minded. You can say that. She drove me nuts with some of the things she did. Art Pulaski, uh, former head of the... uh, of the California Labor... One of the leaders of the California Labor, Labor, Labor Federation. She drove me nuts with some of the things they did. We'd say we need some help with the governor's campaign, and Roseanne would say they're putting up a billboard of Schwarzenegger in a bikini. But a lot of those campaigns, like the one with Queen Meg, were brilliant. The theater helped make larger concepts understandable to her membership and everybody else. You never get social change if you didn't have someone advocating for what seems to be unattainable. Over the years, DeMauro helped transform her organization from a 19,000-member professional association whose executive board was dominated by nurse managers into a union with 100,000 members in California and an additional 50,000 members in other states through Nurses United. To tomorrow, my my not convincing Jerry to do single-payer, even though Brown supported single-payer when he ran for president in 1992, is my greatest failure. Even though she's leaving, single-payer will remain one of her union's highest priorities. My parents weren't very political, she said, and paused the beat to deliver the punchline. They were Democrats. The roots of her activism go back to her working class upbringing in St. Louis as the daughter of a pizza parlor owner. Her parents imbued her with a bottomless work ethic and a desire to help working people like their neighbors. With her high school sweetheart and husband of 49 years, Don, she found her way to California as an organizer. Okay, Rosanne DeMauro certainly... um, One of the driving forces, huh? In the California labor movement for the last several decades. This one is about Ed Sadlowski. See if we can get Eddie up here. Ed Sadlowski was a an Eastern, an East Coast guy. Recently died at the age of eighty. And uh, this is on Labor Notes. The late 1960s and 70s gave rise to grassroots movements for union democracy all over the United States. The ones in the auto workers and mine workers have been written about the most, but steelbacks, steelworkers fight back was no less momentum. Fight back was a movement for greater democracy within the steelworkers union. A name that stands out in this national uprising is Ed Sadlowski, who rose from an oiler's job to director of the largest district in the steelworkers at that time, District 31. 
Oil Can Eddie, as he was known, went on to challenge the top bureaucracy running for president in 1997. Those of us who worked with him or knew him paid tribute to his endless contributions to democratic unionism. There could not be a greater loss to grassroots democracy in the union movement than his passing last June 10th. He was hired in Chicago in 1956. His father had been a member of the local in 1010 in Gary, Indiana, known as the Red Local, and was active in the CIO organizing campaigns. Eddie was not only an activist, worker, and leader, but also a labor historian. My first long conversation with Eddie happened at the USW Training Center at Linden Hall outside Pittsburgh in the 80s. I told him I was about to explore the mill towns along the Monongahela River, and he said, let me be your guide. He had a wealth of stories about the workers and the union history. There had been earlier struggles for a more democratic union in steel. Especially important was the black struggle for equality that culminated in the formation of the Ad Hoc Committee of Black Steelworkers in the 1960s. Anyway, this is on uh, Labor Notes. Oil can Ed Sedlowski, who led a... uh, Unsuccessful, ran for president of the Steelworkers Union unsuccessfully because uh, Canadian workers who didn't know him very well were allowed to vote. They all voted together. Ed Sadlowski never retired even after he retired from steel. He continued union organizing and representation, working with AFSCME and other unions. Eddie always made himself available to anyone who wanted to talk, get advice, meet with him, or learn from him. Oil Can Eddie has mythical stature. Ed Sadlowski was one of the best union unionists the labor movement ever had. Okay, Roseanne DeMauro and Ed Sadlowski. Before we go back on the labor meet, let's play some music. So now we've identified who our enemies are, huh? Okay. Now we know what to do. We have our rights, don't we? Not according to George Carlin. Boy, everyone in this country is always running around yammering about their fucking rights. I have a right. You have no right. We have a right. They don't have a right. Folks, I hate to spoil your fun, but... There's no such thing as rights, okay? They're imaginary. We made them up, like the boogeyman. (laughs) The three little pigs, Pinocchio, Mother Goose, shit like that. Rights are an idea. They're just imaginary. They're a cute idea, cute. But that's all cute and fictional. But if you think you do have rights, let me ask you this. Where do they come from? People say, well, they come from God. They're God-given rights. Oh, fuck, here we go again. Here we go again. 
The God excuse, the last refuge of a man with no answers and no argument, it came from God. Anything we can't describe must have come from God. Personally, folks, I believe that if your rights came from God, he would have given you the right to some food every day, and he would have given you the right to a roof over your head. God would have been looking out for you. God would have been looking out for you. You know that? He wouldn't have been worried about making sure you have a gun so you get drunk on Sunday night and kill your girlfriend's parents. <laughs> but let's say it's true. Let's say God gave us these rights. Why would he give us a certain number of rights? The Bill of Rights in this country has 10 stipulations, okay? 10 rights. And apparently God was doing sloppy work that week because we've had to amend the Bill of Rights an additional 17 times. <laughs> so God forgot a couple of things like slavery. <laughs> just fucking slipped his mind. But let's say, let's say God gave us the original 10. He gave the British 13. The British Bill of Rights has 13 stipulations. The Germans have 29. The Belgians have 25. The Swedish have only six. And some people in the world have no rights at all. What kind of a fucking goddamn God-given deal is that? No rights at all? Why would God give different people in different countries different numbers of different rights? Boredom? Amusement? Bad arithmetic? Do we find out at long last after all this time that God is weak in math skills? Doesn't sound like divine planning to me. Sounds more like human planning. Sounds more like one group trying to control another group. In other words, business as usual in America. Now, if you think you do have rights, one last assignment for you. Next time you're at the computer, get on the internet, go to Wikipedia. When you get to Wikipedia, in the search field for Wikipedia, I want you to type in Japanese Americans 1942, and you'll find out all about your precious fucking rights, okay? All right, you know about it, you know about it. Yeah. In 1942, there were 110,000 Japanese American citizens and good standing law abiding people who were thrown into internment camps simply because their parents were born in the wrong country. That's all they did wrong. They had no right to a lawyer, no right to a fair trial, no right to a jury of their peers, no right to due process of any kind. The only right they had, right this way. <laughs> into the internment camps. Just when these American citizens needed their rights the most, their government took them away. And rights aren't rights if someone can take them away. They're privileges. That's all we've ever had in this country is a bill of temporary privileges. And if you read the news even badly, you know that every year the list gets shorter and shorter and shorter. You see how similar Yeah. Sooner or later, the people in this country are going to realize the government does not give a fuck about them. Government doesn't care about you or your children or your rights or your welfare or your safety. It simply doesn't give a fuck about you. It's interested in its own power. That's the only thing, keeping it and expanding it wherever possible. Personally, when it comes to rights, I think one of two things is true. I think either we have unlimited rights or we have no rights at all. Personally, I lean toward unlimited rights. I feel, for instance, I have the right to do anything I please. But if I do something you don't like, I think you have the right to kill me. So where are you gonna find a fairer fucking deal than that? 
So the next time some asshole says to you, I have a right to my opinion, you say, oh yeah, well I have a right to my opinion, and my opinion is you have no right to your opinion. <laughs> then shoot the fuck and walk away. Thank you. George Carlin there talking about an earlier time of uh, internment camps. Japanese Americans in the 40s. Now we have it on our border and we separate children from their adults and adults from their children because of where they come from. So, you're just not that into politics. Is that what you say? There's always somebody who's going to say that. You're just not that into politics. Okay. Well, your boss is. You can bet on that. Your landlord is. Your insurance company is. And every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny your coverage. It's time to get into politics. Okay, that's our little weekly pep talk. Here's how we feel. <sighs> About the kids at the board. We have a deep feeling.
ricos se presentan como gente muy patriota por eso la clase obrera está en Irak calzando botas pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo ahí tienen la tele no me creen. como testigo pero a mí no me creen lo que les digo ahí tienen la tele como testigo Por allá andan presumiendo sus aviones invisibles Que sus bombas solo matan a soldados y a civiles bomb people in hospitals, uh, También those are all que sus bombas no se han dirigido mal Han caído en edificios y uno que otro hospital Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo Ahí tienen la tele como testigo Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo Ahí tienen la tele como testigo Y cuentan que los Hussein son unos hombres muy matones Pero como van las cosas a Bush no le llegan ni a los talones otros dicen que la ONU se opuso a la invasión No sabiendo esa señora que Bush era su patrón Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo Ahí tienen la tele como testigo Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo Ahí tienen la tele como testigo Ay, 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 CNN, Fox News, Univision, todos dicen y dicen, y si lo dicen, por algo lo dicen, pero a la hora de la hora no sé ni lo que dicen, solo que otros dicen que esta guerra es ilegal, pero por nosotros ser gabachos, eso no se ve tan mal. Soy jornalero, disque ilegal, pero qué suerte la mía, si me voy para Irak. Bush me da ciudadanía En la tumba, en la tumba Ya con esta me despido De esta gran calamidad Les deseo mucha suerte Descubriendo la verdad Pero a mí no me crean Lo que les digo Ahí tienen la tele Como testigo Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo, ahí tienen la tele como testigo. La 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 la. Vámonos. Some people are wondering, how did we get to this place where we're keeping 
working people out of the United States by terrorism, by taking their children away from them, taking them away from their children. To refer to another time where the United States went crazy over immigration, where two Sicilian anarchists were arrested, most people say falsely, tried in what was a joke of a trial. Sacco and Vanzetti. This song is a song I wrote when I was in Italy, and it is one part of a three-part song that was written for the movie Sacco and Vanzetti. They were probably our most famous political prisoners in this country. We got the royal treatment, so to speak. <laughs> and all of the words are taken from letters from Vanzetti.
I have my love, my innocence, the workers and the poor. Rebellion, revolution, don't need dollars, they need this instead. Imagination, suffering, light, and love, and care for every human being. You never steal, you never kill, you are a part of hope and life. The revolution goes from man to man and heart to heart. I sense when I look at the stars that we are children of life. Death is That, of course, was Joan Baez singing a song, a ballad of Sacco and Vanzetti, of words in t written entirely by Bartolomeo Vanzetti, a man who was not a native English speaker, but kind of taught himself English and uh, ended up writing some of the most eloquent passages about the struggle between labor and capital. Uh, one of the things that was found in his possession when he was uh, arrested was a handbill at the beginning of a speech about working people. You've done all the work. You've erected the cities. You've cleared the land. And what have you got to show for it? What indeed... Back on the labor beat, let's listen to Radio Labor, our world labor connection about events going on. And as I say, there are always, always, always things going on every minute of every day all around the world. Working people are standing up and demanding better treatment, safer work, better compensation, in other words, bettering their lives. The question is, do you do it one at a time and get smashed, or do you join together with people like yourself and try to make your life better? Here's Radio Labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report, recorded on Friday, June 15th, 2018. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, major progress on establishing an international law against harassment and violence at work. The leader of the 20 million member Uni Global Union steps down. The Labor Start report about union events around the world and Union Nation with their song, Grindstone. This is Radio Labor. 
Unions around the world have been lobbying their governments and employers to support an international standard against violence and harassment at work. Seamarie Ainsborough reports. A major step towards reducing harassment and violence at work for both women and men has been taken. A key committee at the UN's International Labour Organization, the ILO, has ruled that the subject needs to be addressed by a new international law. The ILO is the United Nations specialized agency which focuses on work in the world. It's operated as a tripartite organization by representatives of governments, employer groups and labor unions. The organization develops international laws called conventions and recommendations which can be adopted by member states. During the ILO's 2018 conference in Geneva, the ILO's Standards Setting Committee decided that the fight against harassment and violence requires a legally binding convention, supplemented by a recommendation on how to address the issue. The employers group at the ILO had strongly objected to a new law, proposing instead a non-binding recommendation. The government and labor representatives overruled the employers. And so now the ILO will prepare material about a convention on violence and harassment at work and present it to the organization's governing body in 2019. Labor leaders applauded the move, but warned that the struggle is not over and unions need to continue lobbying for the convention. Radio Labor talked to Chidi King about the proposed convention. Ms. King is the director of the Equality Department of the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC is the global body which represents national labor centers such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress. Ms. King was asked how widespread the problem of harassment and violence at work is. We have statistics coming from various parts of the world. So, for example, if we were looking globally, we would say that at least 35% of women have experienced some form of sexual or physical violence. And this covers the home, the communities, as well as the workplace. But if we were to go, for instance, to Uganda, a survey there showed that 90% of women um, who, who were surveyed reported experiencing sexual harassment, so one form of gender-based violence um, in the workplace. Again, in Asia-Pacific, if we go to the Philippines, we had reports concerning domestic violence and the impact of domestic violence in the workplace. And there, 85% of women who had experienced domestic violence reported that it had had an impact on their ability to continue working. Again, staying in the Asia-Pacific, if we go to Hong Kong, in the service sector, a survey there showed that nearly 60% of female employees had experienced some sort of violence, including sexual harassment. So, as you can see, it's, it's pretty widespread and very common. Ms. King was also asked how an international labor standard on harassment and violence at work could help reduce the problem. Well, I think one of the most important things that an international labor standard could do is signal very clearly that violence and harassment are simply not part of the job. Many workers, particularly women workers, um, given they're often subordinate positions, in the workplace experience forms of violence and gender-based violence um, almost on a daily basis but are either too afraid to speak up, um, whether it's fearing retaliation, including the loss of their job, or just feeling that nothing much will be done about it. And I think we saw quite a little bit of this phenomenon or quite a lot of this phenomenon in the social media outpouring that came along with hashtag me too etc so sending this strong message that gender-based violence or violence and harassment are simply unacceptable and not part of the job is one thing 
then it would also place clear responsibilities on governments, employers and trade unions um, on the need to act to end violence and harassment, and again, especially gender-based violence and harassment in the world of work. Um, it would raise awareness about this issue, but it would more importantly assist the actors in the world of work to put in place the necessary measures to prevent, address and redress violence and harassment in the world of work. The next ILO conference, which may consider the Convention on Harassment and Violence at Work, will take place in Geneva in June 2019. I'm Seamarie Ainsborough. What are we trying to do here? What is it that we are trying to do as a global union and a global movement? We're trying to put work back in the centre of the conversation. There are only three million people in Wales, but that tiny country has produced a disproportionate number of great labor leaders. One of those leaders, Philip Jennings, is stepping down as general secretary of Uni Global Union this month. Uni is the global union for skills and services with 20 million members in a wide range of sectors, including finance, IT, media, hair and beauty, tourism, and garment production. Mr. Jennings is the founding general secretary of uni. In a recent address at the Labor Relations School of Cornell University in the United States, he looked back on his career in the labor movement and ahead to the future he sees for working people. I lived in a terraced house. We slept five in a room, myself and my three sisters. My mother was an orphan. My father was a factory worker. We had an outside toilet, no hot water, a real industrial family just trying to make it. Okay, you can call it big red socialist thinking if you like, but this sense of opportunity and caring for others and community helped me. We went from five in a room to public housing where we had a bathroom on the inside with hot water and a garden. We could grow vegetables. I went to a free school. We had free public health. I had free education, free health. We paid pennies for the house that we lived in. And I went to university, I was the first kid in my school, in my street to go to university, and I went for free. I couldn't ask my father for money, he only earned five pounds a week. He used to be slapped on the mantelpiece every Friday afternoon or Friday night when he came back from work. And I went to the LSE, this place of great learning, and I went there with a scholarship. I started trade union work in the UK in 19, 1970, boom, 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 76. I remember in a car, when Margaret Thatcher became the leader of the Tory party, we stopped the car. We danced in the street. We said, we're going to have a Labour government forever with this woman. Like many people said, Brexit won't happen and Donald Trump will never be the president. How wrong we were. And then we begin to look at the, the seeds that were sown at that time. And then when Margaret Thatcher said, there is no society, can you imagine? There is no society. What does that mean? You have no neighbor. You have no community. What does that mean? And that is the kind of thinking that I've had to live with all of my union life. Because right in the front line of there is no society, it also means they declare a kind of war on those organizations that see things differently. And then you fast forward today. You see racism, xenophobia, nationalism, demonization, division, attacks on minorities and race and women, attacks on people, their sexual orientation. It's a kind of echo of that moment. There is no society. And hence, when I talk about the future of work, justice and peace, 
That takes me to the future of work. We have to look at the nature of the changes which face us in terms of job quantity, job quality, and above all, transformation. This digital revolution is transformational, and my message is we are not prepared for this degree of transformation, and we are not prepared to accompany people. We're accused of being protectionist and all the rest of it. So I like the word, how are we going to accompany people through this revolution? In terms of their income, in terms of their job, in terms of their retraining, in terms of their requalification, and how you turn education into a lifetime experience. Here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the average of 175 news stories added to our site each day last week. Our top stories section included links to coverage of organizing efforts by app-directed workers across Europe, a call to remember the 21 workers who died building the World Cup facilities in Russia, and the announcement that the independent unions of Kazakhstan are the winners of this and how you turn education into a lifetime experience. Here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the average of 175 news stories added to our site each day last week. Our top stories section included links to coverage of organizing efforts by app-directed workers across Europe, a call to remember the 21 workers who died building the World Cup facilities in Russia, and the announcement that the independent unions of Kazakhstan are the winners of this year's Svensson Prize for trade union rights. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Sri Lankan posties began an open-ended walkout over wages. Rail workers in Slovenia held a four-hour warning strike on Monday while their colleagues in France continued a series of walkouts over the privatization of that country's passenger rail system. The women who work at a food processing plant in the Philippines took to the picket lines after decades of sexual harassment at work and as layoffs were threatened. Wages and high inflation were behind a stoppage by Argentinian truckers. Emergency management workers across Nigeria struck after months of waiting for the government to honor a prior agreement. The strike resulted in the immediate implementation of parts of that agreement. South African Social Benefits Administration workers down tools in a wage dispute, timing their token strike to allow benefits to be paid. Rail workers across northern India held a one-day walkout and hunger strike as their union escalated a pension and short staffing dispute. Electricity workers walked out for three days across Brazil as they pressed their wage demand and protested against a threatened privatization plan. And mining explosives technicians in Zimbabwe organized a warning strike to protest wage theft. Our top working women's stories included coverage of the Your Home is My Workplace campaign by a union representing domestic workers in India, rallies and marches by domestic workers in Taiwan as they struggle to obtain days off work, and a new study that shows how in 55 years of legislated equal pay, little has changed for women in the United States. 
The Health and Safety Newswire, rerun in cooperation with Hazards Magazine, carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about mine safety campaigning by unions in Rwanda and South Africa. The extreme hazards faced by cash and transit workers in South Africa and about the national workplace violence crisis in American hospitals. Currently, Labor Start is running five online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Union Nation with Grindstone. generation said keep your nose to the grindstone and don't you look up or we'll be sending you home That's it. International labor news and music you can use. You can find more labor news on our website at www.radiolabor.net. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. That was our radio labor report. And uh, we had a we had a set before that. Um, Joan Baez with the Ballad of Sacco and Vanzetti. Pero a mí no me crean with Francisco Herrera, um, one of the bosses of a local music scene, a tireless political worker as well. Pero a mí no me crean translates as uh, don't take my word for it. 
I saw it on TV, right? Uh, every time the uh, missiles kill somebody, it turns out they were a soldier. Every time a missile hits a, a drone, hits a building, it turns out that it wasn't supposed to be a hospital, except it was. Other stuff like that. And the first one was Chuck Berry with his beautiful rendition, slide guitar rendition of a song called Deep Feeling. Radio Labor mentioned prominently the campaign for against workplace harassment, sexual harassment. And we've got a story from our own NFL, the National Football League. As uh, Radio Labor emphasized, workers die building these facilities. 21 workers died putting together the scene of the, putting together, building the, the site of the World Cup. Uh, this one is about the National Football League. Something like 10,000 people in, uh, in Qatar for the 2022 World Cup. Anyway, we'll, we'll run that down. This is about a Dallas, a Houston, Texas, Texans cheerleader who claimed she was duct taped for being skinny fat. A six former Texans cheerleader is suing the team claiming that she was body shamed, according to NBC News. In a press conference on Friday, Angelina Ross claimed that her skin was duct taped without her consent because she was considered skinny fat by her coach. Rosa described how her coach once asked her to stay behind when her teammates went out on the field and then threatened to cut her from the team. Suddenly, a group of alumni and her coach used tape with the Texans logo to pull her skin tight. They told her it would hurt a little. My skin was being torn because of the movements, Rosa said. She also said her skin got sweaty and irritated under the tape. Rosa joins a lawsuit filed earlier this month against the Texans by five former cheerleaders. In the suit, they claimed they weren't paid at all for all the hours they worked and were bullied and sexually harassed. After the lawsuit was filed, the Texans released a statement saying, we have reviewed the complaints and look forward to vigorously defending ourselves against these allegations. Houston Texans statement runs like this, have been repeatedly recognized as one of the top workplaces in our city. We appreciate the Houston Texans cheerleader for the positive impact they have made in our community and for the outstanding way they have represented our organization for nearly two decades. If there are things we learn from this process that we feel will make our cheer program even better, ah, Anyway, double talk. Cheerleaders for the Saints and Dolphins have also filed 
complaints. A former Cowboys cheerleader filed a suit claiming that the team failed to pay her minimum wage in overtime. She also claimed that she was paid only a quarter of what the mascot made. Ladies and gentlemen, the National Football League can't afford to pay $7.25 an hour, can't afford to pay these women what they're worth. They make $14 billion a year. They pay Roger Goodell, the, the commissioner, $9 million. Ladies and gentlemen, Texas cheerleaders... Here's a, an open letter that Ralph Nader, Nader has written to Jeff Bezos. Bezos is the boss of uh, Amazon and is now maybe the richest, richest man in the world. Dear Mr. Bezos, says Nader, you've come a long way from being a restless electrical engineering and computer science dual major at our alma mater, Princeton University. By heeding your own advice, your own hunches and visions, you become the world's richest person at $141 billion and counting. You must feel you're on top of the world. You're crushing your competition. Those little stores on Main Street USA and other large companies that are still in business. You're Early clever minimizing of sales taxes gave you a big unfair advantage over brick-and-mortar stores that have had to pay 6 7 and 8% in sales taxes. Your tax lawyers and accountants are using the anarchic global tax avoidance jurisdiction to drive your company's tax burden to zero on a $5.6 billion profit in 2017. plus receiving about $789 billion from Trump's tax giveaway law, according to the American Conservative magazine. Amazon has been a leading corporate welfare king and is about to reap more of this extorted, extorted harvest once you decide where to locate your second headquarters. By the way, if you're considering the Washington, D.C. area where you are building an an extended mansion worthy of an emperor, consider the fact that there is a higher concentration of public interest lawyers per square mile there than any other metropolitan area. Amazon and Starbucks have just succeeded in a grotesque power play reversing the Seattle City Council's vote to impose a mere $48 million a year tax on large local corporations to combat the crisis of homelessness and unaffordable housing in your hometown. Given your successful tax avoidance mania, you should be ashamed of yourself because of your need company's insatiable greed you have decided to ignore the plight of the homeless Peace.
relentless greed with overly contracted, concentrated power about the only thing you seem not to be willing or able to control is Alexa, whose ambitions may come back to haunt you. Sooner or later, you will face a statute of limitations. So Nader is calling out Jeff Bezos about Bezos' relentless tax avoidance schemes. Okay, what's happening in labor history? On June 7, 1943, black workers at Buckeye Cotton Oil Company in Memphis, Procter & Gamble-owned operation, went on a wildcat strike in protest of continued workplace discrimination, despite federal orders to integrate the defense industry, a sign of the poor enforcement of the Roosevelt administration anti-discrimination initiatives. Black workers in Memphis, a deeply racist city, were stuck in menial and dangerous jobs. And if they did the same jobs as whites, they were paid less. Okay, check it out on Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Working class history. On this day, 23 June 1970, protesters in Tokyo rioted against during a demonstration against the actions of the U.S. government. On June 22, 1908, the red flag incident took place in Tokyo, Japan, marking the beginning of the move of the imperial government to crush the socialist movement. Celebrated anarchist Koken Yamaguchi was released from prison and was met by crowds waving red flags, carrying anarchist, communist, and revolutionary slogans. A red flag incident. On this day, June 23, 1937, during the Spanish Civil War, Following the Stalinist suppression of the anarchists and anti-Stalinist socialist POUM, George Orwell fled Spain with his wife Eileen O'Shaughnessy, went home to write the book Homage to Catalonia. Okay, this is the B, and it's about time for us to leave as usual we have much more than <laughs> than uh, we have time for I consider that a good a good thing um, hope you have a good week good work remember this show is dedicated to the Workers who, or to the workers who die every 15 seconds in work-related conditions or situations. Remember, you know, the blues speak of so many things. if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. It requires a lot of... If you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. 
think about the various never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. I say labor, I mean you. Tune in to us next week on the Labor and Love Show where the labor meets the road. And remember, Mutiny Radio needs you. Have created miracles. Okay. Sign in to our GoFundMe, which is, I understand, more than halfway now. And donate to Mutiny Radio, a true community arts center, as well as a radio station. Mutiny Radio needs you. Willie Dixon, don't make peace. As you have been making war. Hi, Solina. We wouldn't have to worry about Paula nothing. Tavita, who makes me a better dad every day. But it don't make sense. My soulmate Sylvia Ramirez and everybody else out it there. It don't you know make sense. Goodbye and good It don't work. make sense. When you can't make In the matter of weeks.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Hey everybody, listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2pm. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2pm. brings you visual and auditory mind control. For the best graphic design, physical merchandise, and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground Comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to ten p.m. And I laugh because five dollars—I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak ceiling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. Yeah. Well, hello, boys and girls. 
You know what a password is. That's a secret word that soldiers would use to get past the sentry and up to the front. Well, here's a password that gets you up to the front in all the right places. It's cannabis energy. It seems the faster you go, the more cannabis energy you need. So if you want to win, you have to have lots of cannabis energy. And the swellest way I know to get it is just by using Green Army Skincare. Boy, they're just crammed full of cannabis energy. There are more cannabis energy units in one lip balm tube than you use circling the base 10 times or when you ride your bike four miles across the city. And it's fast acting. Why, no sooner that you apply some balm to your mouth or pain areas, you practically feel the new strength in your muscles. And what's more, Green Army Skincare is a good, wholesome product. They're made with body nourishing cannabis and other natural ingredients. So go out there today and pick up some Green Army Skincare products from your local cannabis procurement center. Join thegreenarmy.com. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to invite you down to Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco at 806 South Van Ness. Uh, we've got great food by our kitchen counter offer, burgers, tater tots, tachos, corn dogs, all sorts of good stuff like that. They're open from opening until 11 p.m. most days of the week, except Saturday. Every Saturday night, we've got live rock and roll, some of the best local bands in San Francisco, and touring acts as well. Come on down, 10 p.m., rock and roll, only night of the week. We have a $5 cover charge, always 5 bucks for live rock and roll. We're open from 4 p.m. until 2 a.m., Monday through Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 2 to 2. Come on down, have some drinks with us. We've got Whiskey Wednesday, Tequila Tuesday, and we've always got the Steve McQueen special. Shot a bullet bourbon and a can of California lager for 8 bucks. Come down and enjoy our patio. It's open uh, in the afternoon, not really in the evening, but a lot of good folks hanging out back there. Come on down, give us a shout. Drop by the bar, make some friends. Thanks, folks. Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District, San Francisco, California. With a happy hour every Monday through Friday until 7 p.m. Don't miss it. Go to Bender's Bar. Big supporter of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2018. Yeah, it goes down. Come smoke with your boy. Grinder. Spark is San Francisco's premier cannabis dispensary with a focus on serving and educating patients for seven years. Spark is dedicated to creating the best in-store experience with its extensive menu, friendly staff, and one of the few cannabis vape lounges in San Francisco. Spark welcomes you to visit its two great locations as a medical patient or for recreational adult use in 2018. Spark is located at 1256 Mission Street between 8th and 9th and at 473 Haight Street at Fillmore. Both locations are open until 10 p.m. every night. Spark staff looks forward to serving you. Coming at these bitches and all these snitches hitting switches going back to riches. Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned and operated food cooperative located at 1745 Folsom Street in the Mission District of San Francisco. Let's hear what locals have to say about Rainbow Grocery. Their bulk section is dope AF. 
I love their, their variety of cheese and home decor items uh, and this of unique items that you can't find anywhere else. Their cheese section is insane. I love Rainbow Grocery because it's the number one grocery store to shop at when you're having a potluck and need to fulfill everyone's dietary needs. They don't have meat. Rainbow Grocery Cooperative, an amazing San Francisco staple since 1975. For all your space chicken sci-fi comedy non-political humor needs, go to Tim's Tesseract. Hey folks, Flat Black Plastic on MutinyRadio.fm. Mm. Damn. A little sip of Perrier here. I had to stop drinking alcohol because I used to wake up Newton Hood in my car with my keys in my ass. <laughs> Not a good thing. Hi, can I help?